I think one of the most wonderful psalms, Psalm 103, great to be able to sing those words together. Let me have you stay standing and let's take our Bibles out. And we're going to be reading this morning and looking this morning at a portion of Romans 9. So let's turn back there. We began looking at this chapter last week. We'll keep journeying on this week through Romans 9. We're going to read, we'll read beginning at verse 1. We'll read down through 13 this morning. Especially we will be looking at verses 6 through 13 this morning. So follow along as I read and let us rejoice as God speaks to us this morning through his word. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word again. We thank you for this time that we have to, to sit and to hear your word preached. We pray, Lord, that you would be with he who preaches and be with us who hear. We ask that your spirit would, would open our eyes and our ears to the things that you have for us this morning. And may we go from here rejoicing that we have been able to hear from you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I imagine looking out across you folks this morning and thinking of the ones that, that even aren't here. But I imagine that most of us, if not all of us, know someone who has baffled us by the fact that they were raised in a Christian home, maybe attended a good Christian church, and yet they have rejected the gospel. They have gone on to live a thoroughly godless life with no concern of the things of God and no obedience to the gospel and the call of the gospel. That can be especially perplexing, I think, in a situation where there are others in the same family that have, as a result of being raised and being around the means of grace, that they have become Christians, but there's someone in the family who it just does not seem to connect with. 
That's very perplexing sometimes to us. Why is it that some can grow up in that situation and be exposed to the means of grace and still reject it? Well, that's the sort of thing that is of such a concern to the Apostle Paul as we return this morning to chapter 9 of Romans. We are freshly into this new section of Paul's letter that runs, we see, from chapter 9 through chapter 11. The section of Paul's letter that he wrote to the church in Rome and to all the churches then and now, uh, anywhere and everywhere. We learned last week that Paul, having concluded the the large section of chapters 3 through 8 concerning the doctrine of justification and the the definition and the means and the purpose and the benefits and the, the blessed demonstration of God's grace in that regard, now in chapters 9 through 11, turns his attention, Paul does, to what certainly was a question, certainly was a question in his mind, that, that arose from that previous discussion and all of the, the blessedness that comes out there. And that's the question of the Jewish people. That's the question of Paul's countrymen according to the flesh, his brothers. How is it uh, that, that they have rejected the gospel, that, that although the gospel, as Paul says back in chapter 1, is to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. How is it, why is it, that the Jews largely reject that gospel? And what does that mean? And what does that say about God? Because that's a more important question here. How does, how does that fact fit with what God has said, with what God has done? The benefits that he has given to the Jewish people, and Paul laid all of that out in verses 1 through 5, those benefits that the Jews had, Uh, Picking up, remember Paul did from back in Romans chapter 3, that question of what advantage has the Jews. Then here in chapter 9, he he listed several of those advantages that they had, the, the blessings that they had. They are Israelites, he says, that is, they are God's covenant people. He said that they were reckoned God's people as God adopted them as his own. It was to them and to no other nation on earth that God revealed himself in the Old Testament and his law and his covenant by his glorious presence even uh, in the most holy place and in the tabernacle uh, in the temple. It was to the Israelites, Paul said, uh, that God gave great and precious promises through his patriarchs, uh, through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Promises of blessing and of restoration and concerning a divine rescuer who would come, anointed by God, appointed by God, sent by God. In fact, that he would be God. This Messiah who would come to rescue his people and to bring them ultimately to to rest and to peace in the presence of God. And sadly, we are reminded that it was that very Messiah that Israel had rejected. And in fact, by the hands of wicked men, killed. Though God then raised him from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ. He who was born a descendant from from the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. uh, David, the righteous king of Israel. And this one who would himself be the greatest king, the eternal king of Israel. The eternal king of God's people. 
And though he came from Israel, as Paul says, according to the flesh, we saw at the last of the message last week that Paul reminds us that he is ever and ever, always will be and always was God over all, blessed forever. This one who had come was from the race of Israel according to his flesh, but he is the Son of God and blessed forever. So again, the question is about how then God's people, the Israelites, would, would reject, could reject, the Messiah. When they, and as I say, they alone had received all of these blessings, and all of this knowledge, and all of the preparation about the Christ who was to come. And this passage then this morning before us continues Paul's discussion of that, continues Paul's answer of that. And this passage that we see before us this morning, Romans chapter 9, the section that we're in, for all of the disagreements that there are and debates about this passage, and we'll look at a couple of those toward the end of the message, but for all of that, this is a very straightforward passage. This is not at all difficult to understand. And so Paul, we're going to see this morning, gives us a declaration, he gives us an explanation, and then he does a little investigation into these things. So those are the three things that we're going to look at this morning. And in verse 6, then Paul begins to answer these questions and to continue his, his, his description of this and his answer to those questions by giving us, first of all, his declaration. This is brief. I mentioned a few times last Sunday as we got started in Romans chapter 9, that, that there was something, as, as Paul was talking about his, his grief and his anguish over his people as, as they had rejected the gospel and rejected the Messiah, we said that there was something more to Paul's concern, something above it and underneath it, that, something more than simply the rejection of the Jewish people to the gospel. As important as that was to Paul, And that's important to Paul. We saw that his reaction last week, the way he opens the chapter, was that it gave him sorrow. It gave him unceasing sorrow, great anguish. But there was something that rises out of that situation, something that is even more of concern to Paul here. And that is, and we've hinted at it several times, what does this say about God? What does this say about God's Word? What does this... What are the implications of Israel's rejection to God's promises to the Israelites? If he's given them all of these benefits, he's given all of these saving benefits and these promises of God's blessing, if he's given all of this to the Jews, and then if God's people, as John says in his gospel, did not receive him, is God's word defective in some way? Has God failed to bring about what he meant to bring about? Has his word failed in its predictions and in its promises and in its prophecies? See, that's even more important to Paul, is what does this do to God? What does this say about God? Has he failed? Has his word failed? That's the question. And Paul begins 
this section by putting that to rest right from the get-go, as we say, in the beginning of verse 6. He says very simply, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Stop there. No. This sad situation of many, even most of the Jews, that situation does not mean that God's word has failed in any way. That's impossible, first of all. Specifically here when he speaks of the word of God, he's probably making reference to the Old Testament, to these promises that he had made. All of those promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Moses and to David and to Isaiah and Daniel and so on, none of that has failed. Paul begins by making the declaration concerning that. None of that has proved inadequate. None of that has proved false. And that very simply is the declaration. And as we've seen before, as Paul has gone through the the logic of Romans chapter 8, he very often makes a statement and then goes through and supports that statement. And that's what he does here. He gives us then, secondly, an explanation. So if the weakness, if the failure is not in God's word, then what is going on? What is the problem? Well, as it turns out, as Paul says here, the the problem is a conceptual problem. The problem is with the understanding that we sometimes, that we can have, this understanding that the Jews themselves had, or at least those who believed that every member of the nation of Israel would have a place in the kingdom of God, and that was a common understanding at that time. But Paul here is now going to explain exactly what is actually the case. He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all, the, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So to understand this, Paul says, we have to correctly understand what Israel is referring to. Because if we just read that sentence... In verse 6, that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, we can go, well, that doesn't make any sense. And to the Jews of, of Paul's day, that statement was normally understood to mean every, or the, the statements about Israel, the promises about Israel were meant to, or were understood to mean every member of the nation of Israel, that all the physical descendants of Israel were included in these promises. In fact, in one of the, what's called the Mishnah, which is the written record of the Jewish oral traditions from the past, there is written this statement, all Israel have a share in the world to come. And then it goes on and says, it doesn't matter if they're a sinner, it doesn't matter anything, all Israelites have a share in the world to come. And most Jews of Paul's day and before that gladly believed that. But Paul, here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, is saying, not quite. He's saying that the failure of Israel, by and large, to to receive and to believe the gospel is not because of the failure of the Word of God. 
But it is because those to whom the promises were given and to whom they apply are not all of physical Israel. Those promises were never meant to apply to all of physical Israel, to Israel as a physical nation, to every member of that. And he says in verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That is, not everyone who is a descendant of the patriarch Jacob. Remember, the patriarch Jacob was renamed by God, and the name that God gave him was Israel. That's, That's the source of the Israelites. The children of Israel are the children of Jacob. And Paul is saying that not everyone who is a physical descendant of the patriarch Jacob... Not all of those who came from one of the twelve tribes are are thus part of the people of God in the most restricted sense. Not all of them who belong to Israel, who are from that lineage, not to all of them do these promises belong. We could translate it this way. Not all those who are descended from the man Israel are truly Israel. And Paul is saying here that there is an Israel within Israel. He says it again in verse 7. He comes at it a little differently. He says, And not all the children of Abraham, because they are, or I'm sorry, but not all, sorry, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but he says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Being a true part of the church in the Old Testament, Paul is saying, was never a national birthright. If it were simply physical relation to Abraham, well, then we'd have to include the Ishmaelites. And the nation of of Edom would be just as privileged as Israel. But Paul says that's not the case. Now, of course, the Jews would recognize and agree wholeheartedly with the fact that the sons of Ishmael are not included in the promises of God. But Paul is saying that it is not even all of the sons of Abraham who are truly part of this Israel within Israel. They're not part of the true Israel. And when I say the true Israel, I'm not, some of you may be thinking over to Galatians chapter 6 with the phrase the Israel of God. That's not what Paul's talking about here. The Israel of God It includes those who are called of God by Jews and Gentiles. And here in Romans 9, the Gentiles are not really in view. So Paul is saying, though, that all of the sons of Abraham are not part of that true Israel within Israel. See, the term Israel, we get confused about that because it's also the name of a nation. But Israel is unique. As, a, as an entity. It is unique even as a term. And we can't understand it the same way that we understand other nation names. To speak of Israel is not the same as speaking of Edom or Italy or France or the United States. It can't be described simply as either a group of people who are citizens of a nation or, or a group of people who have a common ancestral origin. That's what Paul's getting at when he says that not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. 
There's something different that qualifies those who are the recipients of these promises in the fullest sense. In verse 7, he says, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That last quote there comes from Genesis 21.12, which Jim read as part of our Old Testament reading this morning. And Paul quotes that because that scripture, that statement by God to Abraham is the key to recognizing the Israel within Israel and to seeing the even larger issue in this passage. And it leads us to Paul to further investigate this. For Paul to take a a deeper dive into his statement that God's word has not failed. A deeper dive into what it means to be an Israelite. And how to make the distinction between Israel and the Israel within Israel. So then he begins, our third point, the investigation. He signals the beginning of his investigation with these words. He says, helpfully, this means that. So that's helpful because this can be confusing up until this point. This verse, uh, these verses following are meant to explain, they're meant to clarify what Paul is saying to, in these previous statements. He says in verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. We've talked about the Israel within Israel. Here Paul calls them the children of God. And he says there is a contrast here between children of flesh and children of promise. The children of flesh aren't the children of God. The children of promise are the children of God. The children of the flesh are the physical descendants of Abraham. You remember the story of Abraham. He's the man that God called out of his idolatrous upbringing and his dwelling in the land of Ur, up in the northeast of where Israel is. God made a covenant with Abraham and he promised to make Abraham a great nation and through him to bless all of the families of the earth. Through God's direction, Abraham ended up in what we call Israel. At the time it was called Canaan, which God then identified to Abraham as the land that he was going to give to him and to his countless descendants, more than the stars in the sky, Those who would call God their God and whom God would call his people. But there was one problem that Abraham had, and that was because of what he didn't have. He didn't have any children. He didn't have a son. His wife, Sarah, was barren. So Abraham complained to God in Genesis 15 and said, The only heir that I have is a servant in my house. But God insisted, no. He says, your own actual son will be your heir. He will be the heir of all of these promises. Well, then Sarah, clever Sarah, notices a loophole in this. Said, well, God said that that 
our son would come from your body, but not necessarily from mine. And so, to help God out, Sarah gave to Abraham her servant girl, Hagar, and said, maybe I will get children through her. And and Hagar does bear a son to Abraham, a child that is named Ishmael. And they think, Abraham and Sarah think, this is... This is how it's going to work. This is, it is through Ishmael that God will fulfill these promises. But God comes to Abraham again and says, no, not through Ishmael. He says, I'll bless Ishmael because your son, he, because he is your son. I'll make him a great nation, which he did. The sons of Ishmael have come down to us today as the Arab nations and the Muslim nations. But your wife, Sarah, barren, 89 years old, will have a son, and you will call him Isaac. And God said, and through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Through Isaac shall these promises come. So Ishmael was a natural son, but Isaac was the son who came as a result of the promise of God. And Paul's statement here back in Romans chapter 9 in verse 8 is that, Well, he says it quite clearly there. It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise. Beginning with Abraham, it's Isaac and his descendants that they are counted as offspring. They are the, the seed of the promise. They are the line of the people of God and of the Messiah to come. The inheriting of the promises of God entails more than just physical descendancy from Abraham. But the Jews were having trouble understanding that, especially as you continue that down through the generations. In verse 9, Paul quotes that promise that was given. He says, this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And the point here. It's interesting, in the original, the word promise is emphasized in the sentence. But the point is that this took place because of God's specific promise, because of God's working, because of what God said. This whole episode with Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael demonstrates that God, in choosing through whom the fulfillment of his original promise to Abraham concerning a land and a people would come, It shows us that God is choosing sovereignly. He is making decisions based on His good pleasure alone. And that becomes the central message here in this passage. The sovereign choice, the sovereign election of God. Here, particularly in the case of the Jews. Ishmael was Abraham's eldest son. By rights, he should have received the blessing and the inheritance. But by God's choice, it went rather to the son of promise, who was Isaac. Now, someone might say, well, yes, Ishmael was Abraham's son, but it wasn't a normal situation. He wasn't Sarah's son. And so Paul now goes on and says, okay, Let's get rid of that. We'll go on to the next generation. And shows the same demonstration of the same main point, that of the sovereign choice and election of God. 
in verses 10 through 13. Let's read them. He says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. He begins by saying, and not only so, so not just that, not just the Abraham incident and, and Isaac, but now let me give you a further clarification of this. Let's take it to the next step, to the next generation, that God's sovereignty in choosing to whom to give his grace is shown in the fact, again, that not everyone who is part of physical Israel is part of the Israel within Israel, what the Old Testament very often will come to refer to as the remnant. Those within Israel who are truly the people of God. And that is shown in the story of Isaac's sons. Who, they're not named really till you get to verse 13, but Paul knows that his readers know who it is, or who they are. And you know who they are. You know the story of, of, of them. But if not, let's do a quick review of that story. That's in chapter 24 of Genesis. At the death of Abraham, Isaac, in fact, receives the blessing, the covenant blessing, the patriarchal blessing of Abraham. And after that, he marries Rebekah, who was also barren. See, this is, one of, this is one of these things that God likes to do, it seems, to stack the deck against himself so that when he acts sovereignly, it's all of the more glorious, and the glory goes to one place alone, and that's to him. So just like um, in the past, now Rebecca is also, just like with Sarah, Rebecca is also barren. But after praying to the Lord, she becomes pregnant with twins. And before they're born, the Lord comes to her and speaks to her, Rebecca, and told her about her two sons. In Genesis 25, 23, the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. And Paul quotes that verse um, down in verse 12, and we'll come back to it. But to finish up our story of the twins, when they are born... The first to be born, and therefore technically the firstborn, is Esau. Followed, I guess about as close, closely as twins can come, the second one is said to be holding on to the heel of his brother, uh, is the younger brother, Jacob. And contra uh, contracting a lot of things that went on through, God, through God's work, using some interesting providence in the lives of these two brothers, including even some not-too-virtuous conniving between Jacob and his mother, it happens just as God promised to Rebekah that the inheritance, the blessing, the continuation of the covenant line goes not through older brother Esau, which would, in any normal case, have been the typical outcome, but it goes through and to younger brother, Jacob. And then Jacob, as I've mentioned a few times, will be renamed by God Israel. And he will father 12 sons. 
and one daughter. And those 12 will become the 12 tribes and later the nation of Israel. But the point here and the aspect of this whole story that Paul is focusing on is once again, as with Abraham and Isaac before him, so with Isaac and Jacob is the sovereign choosing of God. I mentioned that case a few moments ago where someone might say regarding Abraham and Isaac, yeah, it was Abraham's son, but it wasn't Sarah's son. You know, to, to get around that, Paul's second illustration, specifically here, is about Rebecca. She conceived the, the two at the same time. She bore the two at the same time. So there's no room for difference here. God's providence, again, at work to, to illustrate this point. Both by one woman and both, Paul says, by one man. Our forefather, Isaac. And notice that he says, our. Remember again, this is Paul speaking to his, his fellow Jews, his, the Israelites. Paul is dealing with them when he speaks this way. But then in verse 11, he comes to the main point. And he actually tells us three incredibly important things about God's choice of Jacob over Esau. Things that are very important to the overall point regarding God's sovereignty and demonstrations of it. First, we read that God's choice was made, verse 11 tells us, before they were born, though they were not yet born. This stresses God's sovereignty, his, his kingly ruling decision, his choice of God. God was not reacting to anything because he makes this choice. He makes this declaration before they're even born. The second thing is he says that they had done nothing either good or bad. So God's election, and certainly that is what this is, God is choosing them certainly to be the channel through which the blessing continues but in doing so, he's also choosing them or choosing one of them to receive the covenant blessings that came from being part of that line. And here, every consideration of works is excluded. God's choosing of one and not the other did not have to do with anything they had done or would do. Because they are not yet born, it is without question that it was not because of their works, either good or bad. Just as Jacob was not given the blessings, he was not included in the covenant line because of his works, neither was Esau excluded because of his works. And in case someone says, but God knew what their works would be, Paul makes it explicit and without question that it was not in any way based on their works. Whether God knew them or not, yes, he knew what they would do. But Paul says it is not because of that. He says in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And that's the third thing. If, if it wasn't according to their works, if it wasn't according to, according to their birth order or anything, what was it dependent on? What was God's choice of Jacob and not Esau dependent on? 
Well, Paul says it was done in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul doesn't say in order that God's election might continue, but in order that God's purpose of election might continue, that it might remain, that it might stay. A strong emphasis here, again, on the free and sovereign choosing of God, excluding any reasons that there may be among those who are chosen or not chosen. Nothing other than his purpose, his pleasure, his election, his free and sovereign choice with which he does everything that he does. And again, that negative reasserting that it was not because of works. Any works. Not works of the law, not works of morality, not good works, not bad works, no works. Works do not enter into God's choice. The reason of the choice of one and not the other is found in God himself. And it was because of this fact that God was able to tell Rebecca before the twins were born that, again, contrary to the way things would normally go, contrary to what we would expect, contrary to the rules of society and of inheritance in the ancient Near East, contrary to all of that, God decided that the older will serve the younger, that the blessing would go to the younger, to Jacob. Again, God flipping what we would expect and sovereignly overriding the course of things for his own purpose and his own glory. And God continues to do that down through the Old Testament. He continues to work contrary and sovereignly to what we would expect, what we would think. It's seen in the fact not only that he calls Isaac instead of Ishmael, that he calls Jacob instead of Esau, but going on down to the the sons of Israel, that he chose Judah instead of Reuben, Reuben or Simeon or Levi, who were all earlier in the birth order than, than Judah was. It's seen in the fact that he chooses you and I instead of others that he has not chosen. It's, And it's for God's purpose. The same purpose that we saw up in Romans 8.28 was the purpose for which we have been called. Called according to his purpose, Paul said. It is that purpose, that predetermined plan of God that is foremost in God's mind as he works. So that it is not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of man, but of God, John said in John 1.13. Then in verse 13, Paul concludes, as he so often does after he talks about these things, with a quotation from the Old Testament giving support for what he's been saying. Here the quote in verse 13 is from the prophet Malachi in, in chapter 1 and in verses 2 and 3. And the quote, as he gives it here, is, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, just briefly here, we'll have to do this. There are two questions that come into play when you look at that verse. The first is, is Paul talking about individuals, or is he talking about nations? Is he talking about people groups? 
And second, what do we do with this phrase concerning, in regard to the nature of God, that God says, Esau, I hated. Very often, hatred is as far from God as we think. But let's look at the first question first. I've heard it so many times in my years in evangelical churches uh, that, that this election that's being talked about here is talking about national election. That this is a reference to Israel as a nation. And Esau as a reference to the Edomites, the nation that came from him. And in the passage that Paul quotes, that is the case. It's clearly in Malachi 1, Malachi is clearly writing, God is speaking about groups. He is relating the words of God regarding his blessing on Israel and his continued opposition to the Edomites who continually oppressed Israel or opposed Israel. And God says there in in Malachi that even if Edom rebuilds the ruins, that the Lord would tear them down. So there he's obviously and clearly talking about the groups, the nations. But in this section... Though the references have some corporate connections, he's talking about men. He's talking about individuals who were the basis for the nations, Israel and Edom, and earlier about the, of the Ishmaelites. But the references in the passage are to the individual men and to their individual places in God's covenant or out of God's covenant. The reference in regard to Jacob and Esau as not yet having done anything either good or bad, that also points to an individual context, an individual reference. And then finally, when we look at the whole purpose of what Paul is talking about, he's bringing these figures up to show why some individuals, individual Israelites do and others do not believe the gospel. Do not rest in Christ. So the references here, I think, very clearly are speaking of these individuals. And it's not unusual for Paul or other New Testament writers to take a quotation from the Old Testament and to interpret it in a New Testament way. Sometimes in a way that that differs from how the original hearer might have understood it. Probably the, the simplest example of that are the Messianic prophecies. That the Old Testament readers would not have said, that's talking about Jesus. But that's the way it is shown in the New Testament to actually be speaking. So in regard to the first question, this is clearly a reference to individuals, not to nations. The other question is, what does it mean that God hated Esau? Esau I hated. Well, again, simply, it is true in a certain sense that that God as the the beneficent creator of all things and as one who loves his creation, it's true in a sense that God loves all of his creation. It's also true in, in a certain sense that as Scripture says that in a judicial way that God hates evildoers. Psalm 5, 6 says that. You hate all evildoers. Psalm eleven five says the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who does violence. That's in reference to 
a judgmental hatred, a condemnation. But I think the best way to understand this phrase here in Romans 9.13, as well as in Malachi 1, is to see this hatred in terms of rejection. That God, again, sovereignly has chosen Jacob and has rejected Esau. And the bottom line is that the quote from Malachi is being brought in by Paul again to support what he has said about the sovereign choice of God in regard to the individuals Jacob and Esau. Not because of works, but because of him who calls, Paul says. So, to this point in the chapter, Paul, who confesses a great grief concerning the rejection of the gospel by many of his own countrymen, the Jewish people, the Israelites, he maintains that the problem is not with God. It's not with God's promises. It's not with God's word that's been given. Because the promises were not given, were not meant to be given, were not meant to apply to all of the nation of Israel. But God has all along been making sovereign choices according to his purpose in election. And therefore it is not all of the children of Israel who are God's children, but it is that Israel within Israel. Within a nation made of children of the flesh, as Paul says, there are those who are children of the promise. And the promises were made to them. A distinction that's shown even in the patriarch families. As God chose this one and not this one. That one and not that one. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. A distinction that's not determined by family ties. It's not determined by birth order. It's not determined by works. Good works, bad works, any works. It is a distinction made by God's own purpose. His purposes in election is that he would be glorified. That he would create a people of his own. A people who would be united to him through faith. And that is true. Those who are included in that are included based on God's doing. Whether that was in Abraham's day or Paul's day or our day. And let us then, let this thought once again humble us before God. I think we were talking about this again on Thursday night in our study of the Canons of Dort, about how God's choosing of us and sustaining us, preserving us. One of the errors that was being brought forward against that teaching was that it makes people arrogant thinking that they have something to to give to God. But as we look at this and we look at the fact that there's no works, no promise of works or anything in this, it reminds us again that it is not us. That as Paul said, where is boasting? It is excluded. And so let us be once again humbled before God as we reflect on the fact that we are not chosen by God, not chosen to receive His covenant mercy, not because of how good we are, not because of how intelligent we are, how good-looking we are, or on what 
promising prospects we would be to have in his kingdom, in his church, but merely for his sovereign good pleasure by which he, God, works out all things to his glory. And to that let us say, Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your choosing us. We, we confess, we recognize, Lord, that, that there is nothing that we could do to make you choose us. But by your grace, you have. Just as you chose Jacob, just as you chose Isaac, Just as you chose Abraham and out of all the people of the earth called him out of idolatry and to yourself. You've done the same for us. And it's not because of anything we have done. It's not because we sought you out and said, Lord, will you accept us? But it's because you sought us out. And you said, I will make you my people and I will be your God. Help us to rejoice in that today and always. In Christ's name, amen.